Let's pray together. Father, we are blessed to start a new year today. I pray, Lord, that as we think about this new year, that our hearts and our minds would be set upon Christ and Him crucified. That we would commit ourselves anew to loving and serving Him with all that we are. Father, we are so grateful for the forgiveness of sin that we find in Christ. We are so grateful for the grace that you have shown us in Him. Father, we know that if it were left to us, that we would be doomed that we would never find salvation. And yet you, in your infinite, perfect goodness, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become your righteousness. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you today and every day for the gift of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live lives that rightly reflect the grace that we have been shown, that we would forsake our own desires, that we would put our own flesh to death, that we would consider others more significant than ourselves, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Father, we ask today that you would speak to your people through your word, that as we come to the scriptures today as we consider the question, how long, O Lord, that, Lord, you would move in our hearts and our minds to reframe our perception of what is and what should be, that we would trust fully in Christ. Help us today, Lord, to trust him. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. And I want to begin this morning with a question. Have you ever felt as though God had forgotten you? Maybe you have been going or have gone through a particularly difficult time in your life, the death of a loved one, a prolonged health issue, turmoil in your family, conflict in your marriage, seemingly insurmountable financial struggles. And in the midst of that, it feels as though the Lord is far from you. The God who has promised to care for us, to do good to his people, Meanwhile, you are suffering in deep sorrow and pain, and you cry out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? And it seems as though there is no answer. It seems as though there is no end to your suffering. It feels as though God has abandoned you while your life falls apart. And this pain can often be compounded or increased by the belief that Christians should never feel this way. Right? 
Christians should never have sorrow or pain. We should only experience happiness and joy. Those things should never impact us and never affect us. We should always just be people with big grins on our faces. This morning, I encourage you to take heart because the Lord is with us in the midst of our suffering. And there is no biblical expectation that we should just snap out of it as we so often may feel that we need to. But we should be mindful that we do not abandon ourselves to despair and discouragement. One of the markers of the truth of our salvation, one of the markers of whether or not we are truly in Christ, is how we deal with suffering. Does our suffering cause us to cling more fully to Jesus, or does our suffering put us in a tailspin? from which we never recover. One of the tremendous blessings that the Lord has given us in giving us the book of Psalms is that so many of our struggles and our joys are mirrored in these pages. And when they are, we are often also shown a pathway out of the darkness of our suffering and into the light of the goodness of God in Christ. That is what we find today in Psalm 13. A roadmap to joy in the midst of our sorrow. Leading us to the reality that the Lord is with us. That he will never forget us. And that he has blessed us abundantly. And so let's look together at Psalm 13. We'll begin with verses 1 and 2, where we first find desperation. If you got one of our bulletins on your way in or one of our sermon listening guides, you'll see we have three points this morning. That's our first point this morning, desperation. Let's read together Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The opening verses of this psalm show us that David, in the midst of this suffering, very much feels as though it's not going to end. This can often be the worst part of suffering, not knowing how much longer it is going to persist. We can often tolerate something if we know that it has a definite end point. When I was in high school, I sprained my ankle pretty badly. And the doctor recommended that I submerge my ankle in ice, get a bucket, fill it with very, very cold ice water, and stick my leg in it. And I said, okay, how long? And he said, as long as you can take it. And I said, all right, I'm tough. I can handle it. So I filled up that bucket of ice water and I stuck my leg in there and I howled like a hit dog. That was an extreme sensation I had never felt before. And I immediately pulled my leg out. I was like, nope, can't do that. Cannot do that. 
And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to set a timer for a minute. If I know I got to do it for a minute, I can do it. So I did. I set a timer for a minute. And I stuck my leg back in that very, very cold water. And it was much easier looking at that timer, waiting for it to go off at zero so I could take my leg out. For some reason, knowing the end point made it more bearable. But often when we're in the midst of suffering, we don't know an end point. If we're grieving the loss of a loved one, there's no end point for that. There's no knowing how long it will be before we wake up and don't feel the excruciating, crushing pain of that loss. We just don't know. And that makes the suffering worse as we just have to wait. There's a reason that we've all heard and even said, I don't know how much longer I can take this. David's repeated use of the words, how long, have a similar connotation. How long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long will this go on? How long will I suffer this way? How long will this pain persist? David uses terms like forget me and hide your face from me. Those give us a window into the real difficulty, the real struggle that David is having here. It's not just that he is hurting and doesn't know when it will end. But it's also that he feels as though the Lord has forgotten him. That he has been abandoned in his time of suffering. To be forgotten means that the person did not care enough to remember. This is why people are so hurt when you forget their birthday. Or when you forget an anniversary. Because it feels as though... You do not care. And so for David to say, will you forget me forever, is expressing that he feels as though the Lord does not care about him. But he goes even further. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? That's something worse. It is actively ignoring someone. David feels as though the Lord is intentionally forsaking him. I think we've all been there. I think in the midst of our suffering, we have all felt like, God, you could fix this. You could make this go away. You could take this hurt from me, and yet you don't. Why are you hiding your face from me? And this is especially painful for David because he, on a personal level, has been promised blessings from God. The Lord has promised to bless him and to bless his family. And yet, he's suffering. However, we can take comfort in the character of God that we know of him from his word. We are promised that the Lord will never forget us. We're promised that. In Isaiah 49, 15 and 16, the Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
Your walls are continually before me. The Lord has promised that he will not forget us. Jesus Christ echoed this promise for us in the New Testament when he promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Not only that, but the Lord will never hide his face from those whom he has, who has promised to bless. In Numbers 23, 19, we are reminded that God is not man, that he should lie, or son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? The Lord's promises are good. The Lord has an immaculate credit rating, if you want to think of it that way. He does what he says. These truths are easy to forget when we are in the midst of our pain, though. And that's what David has done. Verse 2 tells us that he has retreated into his own thoughts. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David is, is undergoing a type of morbid introspection. He is examining his circumstances on his own. He's thinking through these things in his own mind. He is considering these things in his own way. That is a dangerous place to be. An exceedingly dangerous place to be when we focus our minds on our own thoughts rather than on the word of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 reminds us where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just last week, just last week, we celebrated Christmas. We celebrated the birth of Christ. And we talked about how counterintuitive the coming of the Messiah is. That you would think the king of all creation, the son of God, would come in a manner befitting a king. And yet, he did not. You would think that God in sending his son to save the world, would have a plan that ends up with this son being victorious. And yet, seemingly, it ends the opposite way, with his death. Why? Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so when we are suffering and we get trapped inside of our own heads, when we do as David is doing and take counsel in our own soul, what we are doing is we are saying, this is not right because I say so, because my mind tells me, because my heart tells me. Our world is filled with people who say, if God is good... How can this happen? How can that happen? Why? Because they are taking counsel in their own soul. They are trying to put God into a box of human understanding. 
And we cannot do that. Whether we're talking about God using Israel as his hand of judgment against peoples in the ancient Near East, whether we're talking about God's directives for sexual ethics, or whether we're talking about our own suffering. We should not look at our circumstances and think, well, clearly God is not good because a good God wouldn't do this to me. And instead, we must think, God is good. His word promises me that. And so this must be for my good somehow. Because David has forgotten the goodness of God in the midst of his suffering, his heart is filled with sorrow. And it seems in those moments that his enemy is exalted over him. Now, we're not certain who this enemy is. We don't know exactly when Psalm 13 was written. Some Psalms tell us, some Psalms don't. This is one that doesn't. It's likely that he wrote this in the midst of Absalom's rebellion when his son rose up against him to try to steal the kingdom away. It's possible. We don't know that for sure. But who the enemy is ultimately is not the point. But what is the point is how the enemy is viewed by David. Which leads us to the next section where we find supplication. Supplication. That's a fancy word for prayer. I just wanted them to rhyme. Just so you know. Psalm 13 verses 3 and 4 says this. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So what we see here is David, despite feeling as though the Lord has forsaken him, that the Lord is hiding his face from him, despite the fact that David feels like he is having to counsel his own, seek counsel in his own soul, where does he turn in the midst of his sorrow? He turns to the Lord. Why? Because he rightly understands that there is no one else who can help. He rightly recognizes that even in the midst of this suffering, where it feels as though it will never end, where he is crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? He knows his only hope of salvation lies in God. And so in verse 3, he calls out, consider and answer me. Consider and answer me. If you've ever been around young children, you might be familiar with the, the various ways they try to get your attention. My children, their preferred go-to is to just say dad over and over and over and over again. And the volume just increases just a little bit every single time. Dad. Dad, 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 just constant until I finally acknowledge them. Sometimes I hear them, I just don't acknowledge them. I just want to see how long they'll go. It doesn't stop. They just continue. David here in saying, consider and answer me, is doing a similar thing. It is the 
literary equivalent of jumping up and down and waving his arms over his head saying, look at me. Pay attention to me, Lord. I know you're far away. I know you're hiding your face from me, but I really need you to pay attention. And notice, notice what David grounds this call in. You'll notice there in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. As you have heard me say countless times from this pulpit, when you see Lord with the small capital letters like that, as your Bible probably has, that is an indicator of the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh. David is calling upon the Lord and appealing to what? His promises. He is saying, God, you have made a covenant with your people. I am one of your people. I am calling upon you in the covenant to look upon me. So here we see David looking upon the promises of God despite the sorrow he feels. He appeals to the Lord on the basis of his promises, not upon his feelings, not upon his own suffering. He says, consider and answer me, covenant God of Israel. Consider and answer me, covenant God of Israel. It is a way for David to say, turn your face back toward me. Show me your favor once again. Although you seem as though you have forgotten me, it seems as though you are intentionally ignoring me, I'm calling upon you to do this thing. Going back to the example of my children, Evelyn is the one who primarily does the escalating dads. At one time, I didn't answer her for a while, and she came over from where she was, and she put her hands on the sides of my face, and she got right nose to nose to me, and she said, Dad, I'm trying to talk to you. And I said, I know. I'm trying to do something right now, and I'll answer you in a moment. And you know what she said? But you're my dad. And you're supposed to talk to me now. She appealed to our relationship, to my role as her father, and said, I need you to pay attention to me now. Now, I'll give you a guess as to whether or not it was really that important. But she recognized in that moment, but you're my dad. David is doing the same thing. Although you seem to be ignoring me, you are my God, and I need you. Please look upon me and care for me. I have no hope apart from you. Care for me. He uses the expression, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is kind of an odd idiom, but to the best we can understand it, it's essentially David saying, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. And I don't know if, if this is David just being dramatic in speech or if he genuinely feels as though he is on the verge of death. It could be either. But he is recognizing that, again, his only hope of salvation is 
the Lord. And he says, if you don't do this, he says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David doesn't say to the Lord, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. And isn't that sad? He says, if you don't help me, my foes are going to say that they've prevailed over me. They're going to rejoice because they, because they think I'm shaken. What David is doing here is appealing to something that the Lord has spoken of throughout his covenant relationship with Israel. In Isaiah 48, 11, the Lord says this, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What David is doing here is he is saying, look, Lord, these are your people. Remember, covenant name. These are your people. I am their king. A role that you have given me. David was the son of a shepherd. When the prophet of God showed up and said, you're going to be king. And he anointed him that very day. And so David has a special role among a special people. And if he falls to his enemies, what does that say about God? God who has promised to care for these people, who has promised to care for this man and his family. If he falls to his enemies, you know what they're going to say? Some God they have. So he appeals to the Lord and says, if you don't do this, my enemies are going to think that you're not God, that you're not good. They're going to think that you are weak, that you, that you don't keep your promises, that you are not good. They're going to think things about you that simply are not true. And so he calls upon the Lord to act for the sake of his name. I want you to notice here, David never mentions sin or repentance. He never mentions sin or repentance because he clearly does not believe that this is not a judgment of God against his sin. There are other Psalms, such as Psalm 51, where David repents of sin, where David recognizes that he is surrounded by enemies because of the judgment of God against his sin. But Psalm 13 doesn't have that. David feels as though this is injustice. And that is why he seeks the Lord in this way. Because he feels as though I, he's done nothing to deserve this. Throughout Israel's history, they were carried off into captivity. They were defeated in battle. They were literally almost utterly destroyed multiple times. And every single time, it was traced back to the sin of the people. But when they sought the Lord, God's provision protected them. And so David is calling upon the Lord because he says, I've not done anything to warrant this kind of judgment. In 
in the midst of our suffering, when the goodness of God seems far from us, when it feels as though our suffering is unjust, we must pray. We must pray, especially when we don't feel like it. It is easy for us when we are in the midst of sorrow and suffering and we feel as though it's never going to end and we feel as though God has forgotten us to say, well, if God's forgotten me, then I'm going to forget him too. Those are the times that we need to pray most of all, that we need to seek the Lord most of all. Because what prayer does is it centers our hearts and our thoughts where they should be on God's character and on God's provision. That's what prayer does. The old saying, prayer changes things. You know what the biggest thing prayer changes? You. It recenters us on where we should be focused on the Lord, on His goodness on his character, on his provision. When we suffer, we don't need more of ourselves. We don't need clarity of thought. We don't need the opinions of the world. We don't even need relief from our suffering. We need the Lord. We need Christ. That is our need. And oftentimes, our suffering is intended to remind us of that. It's intended to remind us that we need to depend upon the grace of God and not ourselves. Because our sinful hearts often forget this and turn toward other things. Jeremiah 2.13 tells us, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for, for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is a, 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 an imagery that we may not be familiar with, but essentially what he's saying is you have the option of getting drinking water from beautiful, clear, flowing streams, and instead you have opted to drink from holes in the ground that collect runoff and dirt and filth and animal droppings. Instead of seeking out the fountain, the flowing, living water, you are drinking this muck. And not only that, but the cisterns you are seeking to drink from are broken. They don't even hold water. You are seeking water where it cannot be found. That imagery helps us to recognize that when we seek out other things in the midst of our suffering. They give us no benefit. They give us no help. They might bring a temporary feeling of relief. Similar to if someone is bitten by a venomous snake and you tie a tourniquet to keep the venom from getting to their heart. Well, that is a temporary solution. Because if you don't do something about the venom, the moment you untie that tourniquet, it's over. The same idea. You might find temporary relief in other places, but the only time you will find true healing is in seeking the Lord. And when our prayers go unanswered, we must continue to seek the Lord. 
when they seem to go unanswered, we must continue to seek the Lord. We must continue to pray as we cry out, how long, O Lord? Because he will help us. David realizes this, which leads us to the next point, the next section of Psalm 13, which is conviction. Conviction, which is what we find in Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. David says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want you to notice here in six verses, David has gone from will you forget me forever to I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In six verses. We don't know how much time elapsed between when David first started writing this psalm and when he finished it. We don't know how much time elapsed in his heart to go from how long, O Lord, to I will sing to the Lord. Could have been moments, could have been months, could have been years. Who knows? But the point is that David's prayer led him there. We see him say, I have trusted. And what is it that he is trusting? Is he saying, I have trusted in your answered prayers? I have trusted in what you have done? No. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast this may have been after the Lord answered his prayers. It may not. But his trust wasn't based upon the answer to prayer. It was based upon the steadfast love of the Lord. That steadfast love there, that's a Hebrew word, hesed, which has to do with devotion, commitment. Essentially, David is saying, I can go on because I know that you have a committed love for me. That's the idea. I have trusted in your steadfast love, your devotion to your people. And what does that trust do? That trust breeds joy in David. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So David, in the midst of this suffering, is saying, I am rejoicing because I know that you will save me. Now, does that mean that David will be delivered from his earthly troubles? Not necessarily. So often I hear Christians believe that the, the, the true hope that they have is in earthly deliverance. Well, I have cancer, but the Lord's going to save me through it. I know he's going to deliver me. And I always say, you're right. If you are in Christ, the Lord will deliver you. But that might not mean what you think it means. He might be delivering you right on up to heaven. Like that might be what the deliverance is. He might be delivering you from this body of death. 
But so often, we have our whole focus around what happens to us in this life. This is not the end. This isn't even the best part. If you're hoping for your best life now, I'm, I'm really sorry, folks. Because this ain't it. David is rejoicing in the salvation of God because he knows one way or another the Lord will save him. Whether that is here on earth or whether that is drawing him to his side in death. He rejoices in that salvation. And we as Christians recognize that ha that has new meaning for us. Right? David was placing his faith in the promises of God that had yet to come to pass. We rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore, longing for the day when the Lord will provide a sacrifice. The Lord has already provided a sacrifice, a permanent sacrifice. And we rest in that. Our hearts rejoice in our salvation. When we suffer, we recognize this is temporary. No matter how bad it hurts, no matter how long it hurts, this is a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory in Christ Jesus. And so when your heart rejoices in salvation, what does that mean? What, what happens? David says, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. And when we rightly understand our salvation being found in Christ, when we center our thoughts in our minds on the goodness of God, you know what that means? It means that we can sing even in times of sorrow. It means that we can sing even when it hurts. Because God is David recognizes this. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He has given me far more than I need. He has given us abundant grace in Christ. In John 1, 14 through 17, we're told, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let me let you in on a biblical secret. It's not much of a secret, but in case you didn't know this, you've got all the grace. You got all of it. There's not like a secret storehouse somewhere where the Lord is waiting for you to reach Jesus level four so you, get, you unlock more grace. When you have Jesus, you have the fullness of grace. What a blessing. What a joy to know that in Christ we have all of it. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace has been given to you in Christ Jesus. 
You don't have to ask for more. You don't have to come like the orphans, hat in hand, please, sir, may I have another grace? You have it. And so what, what do we do with Psalm 13? How do we apply this in our own lives? Well, to put it very simply, in your sorrow, in your suffering, trust in Christ because he is good. Place your faith in the only one who is ultimately for you, who will never seek to harm you, who is always seeking your eternal good, and that's Jesus Christ. Do you know who looks out for you even more than you do? Jesus does. You might think, well, I'm looking out for number one. I'm doing what's best for me. If you've had, if you've had children, you know what it feels like when your children think they know what's best for them. And you recognize, I'm doing this because I know what's best for you. Guess what? We are the children. We are the helpless little babies. God is our father. And he knows what is best for us. You think you know what's best. You think you know what you need. You don't. Place your trust in Christ. Now, I want to be really careful here to say this. It does not negate our pain. It doesn't just make our sorrow evaporate. It still hurts. And that's okay. We have these emotions because the Lord has given them to us. They are corrupted and twisted by sin. But the Lord has made us this way. And there is not an expectation. The Lord is not up in heaven going, hey, listen, uh, just dry those tears. You know, I, I know, I know it's really hard. I know it's really sad. But just, you know, dry them up because I gave you grace. I gave you grace upon grace, in fact. So why are you sad? That's not how the Lord addresses these things with us. Jesus, in losing a good friend, wept. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be wrecked by sorrow. So long as you come back in your grief to the Lord. That is the point. That is what David did here. We must remember that our weakness shows us the goodness of God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he's, he's talking about how the Lord has shown him these things and, and, and showed him this great vision. And then he says, and the Lord, so that I would not boast, gave me a thorn in the flesh. So that in my suffering, I would rejoice. And he says, I prayed and asked the Lord to take it from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Your suffering is intended to show you the strength of God in your own weakness. When you think, how can I go on? The answer to that question is the grace of God. The other thing to remember 
in the midst of our suffering is that our sufferings unite us to Christ. In Romans 8, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our sufferings unite us to Christ. One of the, one of the biggest issues I have with the health and wellness and prosperity preachers who run around telling everybody, oh, Jesus wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. Nothing will ever go wrong if you just trust in Jesus. One of my biggest complaints with that is, since when is a servant greater than his master? Our Lord suffered tremendously for us. Why then should we feel as though we are entitled to a free pass out of suffering? We're not better than Jesus. Our suffering helps us to remember what he has done for us. Every bit of hurt and pain that we feel, Jesus had it worse. Every bit of sorrow that we have encountered, Jesus experienced more. And he did it willingly with the joy of the Lord set before him. Why? That we would be saved. Jesus willingly suffered for us. And when we suffer, we are united to him. And so the right response to our suffering is to place our faith in the Lord, to trust him with our lives. And if you're here this morning and I'm talking about these things and you're sitting there going, I don't understand any of this. Everything you're saying sounds completely foreign to me. I want to talk to you about that. I would love to sit down with you and share more with you about these things. Because Jesus Christ came and died that sinners could be made right with God. And perhaps today is the day that the Spirit is drawing you to come to faith in Him. Because the only path through suffering that is of any value is the path that leads to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. For the way that you reveal yourself to your people through it. For Lord, the way that you help us to recognize your character in the midst of our suffering. Father, you are so good to us, and I pray today, Lord, that we place our faith and our trust fully in you. <coughs> Father, I pray that if there are any here who are suffering, I pray, Lord, that their faith would be strengthened by the goodness of God in Christ. And Father, if there are any here who do not know the Lord, or do not know you, that I pray, Lord, that they would seek me out after our gathering today, seek out Pastor Michael that we can share with them how they too can know Christ and be saved. Lord, we ask during this time that our hearts would rejoice in your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.